I think this is easily explained. We're talking about a move from comparable economic powers to a situation where we have predator and prey. You can't show me a predator that doesn't like their prey, and you can't show me prey that likes their predator. <laughs> Mark, hi, good morning, how are you? I'm very well, and I'm going to break rule one, just for starters. Okay. <laughs> okay. There were hailstones as big as, wait for it, billiard balls. In Brian's. I know it's just a shocker. It's a shocker. I saw the picture. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's not weather. No. We're talking meteorites, you know, mini meteorites. That's what I know. Right. And the only good news is the people that sent me that picture also sent me a picture of what they'd done with the hailstones, which is to fill up a champagne bucket and put some champagne on ice to celebrate the arrival of the hail. That's all I have to say about the weather, Tim. Good morning. Okay, that's fine. I just our fantastic editor, Tevia Shapiro, doesn't like us talking about the weather. But anyway, uh, this is something special and it happened yeah. and it's big. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Can we talk a little bit about the upcoming summit between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden, US President Joe Biden? I think it's great that they're meeting, but actually, my number is on this topic for this week. And here is the question, which really don't answer if you don't really want to. But guess if you'd like, how have American attitudes towards China shifted since 2017? In 2017, 40% of Americans said that China was the enemy and 40% said China was the ally and 20% were not sure. Mm. So the situation now, what percentage of Americans think China is the enemy? I'm going to go for 60%. 80%. Wow. It's just absolutely incredible. But here's the interesting thing, right? So a similar survey was done in China. <laughs> I can't write. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. No, no, no. no, but this is the okay. surprising thing, right? In April 2020, 80% of Chinese respondents viewed US as an enemy. But this year, this number has fallen to 50%. And actually, 75% of the Chinese polled are concerned about US-China tensions and think the two countries should be working together to fix them. No, I, I think this is easily explained. We're talking about a move from equal economic powers or you know comparable economic powers to a situation where we have predator and prey. You can't show me a predator that doesn't like their prey. And you can't show me prey that likes the credit. Okay, that's my analysis of what you've just given me. Okay. I mean, the shifts are glacial. I know, I know. It's, a, it's absolutely incredible. You know, if you just read the American media, if you listen to American politicians, it's sort of become a thing to be anti-Chinese. You know, something like 60% of American imports come from China. The entire consumer base of America is underpinned by Chinese manufacturing. An enormous amount of financing of Chinese debt takes place on the international markets backwards and forwards. You know, these are two countries that need to be cooperating. You know, they don't have to be the best of friends, but they should be cooperating. And it's very worrying that they're not. And so I'm, I have high hopes for this conference. Another sort of thing from a business perspective comes out of in a business relationship, is it better to be a supplier than a shareholder? Which of the economics are more attractive? Sometimes I'm called to look at transactions and I go, okay, you know, these people would never buy the shares because they're making more money out of supplying you with their product. So why, you know, why would they buy the shares? Right. But at some point in time, these intertwined economic dependencies, despite their virtues, create a point of inflection 
when essentially you own the economics of the firm. Right. Okay. And sometimes that's manifest in the creditors instead of the shareholders, and sometimes that's manifest in the suppliers instead of the shareholders. And I think those kind of tensions are starting to emerge. These dependencies and the distilled economics which come out of them are starting to create a debate between the shareholders of the two entities. And I've seen that more than once as a consequence in normal, good old-fashioned corporate finance. Yeah, that's very interesting. There's obviously another aspect to it too. It's been said a hundred million times, but for people in the US, this is a quite a difficult moment. You know, it's, it's sort of comparable to the moment that Britain was in sort of shortly after the Second World War. You know, you just have to accept that your global power is going to be declining and it will continue to decline. Yeah. And it's, it's a hard thing to accept. You know, if you are a sort of proud American, and now all of a sudden, actually, you know, somebody else is bigger than you. You know, it's especially after almost a century of American economic dominance. There's a lot of getting used to the idea of being on a competitive playing field rather than being the sort of dominant player. It's a kind of psychological thing. Yeah, one of the consequences of that sea change is that it brings about infighting. Okay. So when people see themselves losing relative power, yes. they start blaming each other, yes. okay, which compounds the problem. Oh, that's a great point, yeah. You're seeing in the United States now, everyone's saying, well, you see what, and make America great again, and don't destroy America, and all of these kinds of things. Absent any definition of what a great America is, or why the relative change has taken place. And that's exactly what the predator wants. The predator wants you to start questioning your way of life, your purpose, the dominance of your ideology, all of those kinds of things. And the more infighting they can bring about, the better chance they have got in the takeover. And we're sort of seeing some of that at home, and we're seeing some of it in Europe, and we're seeing some of it worldwide, where people in search of protecting their own ideologies and spaces are starting to fight amongst one another and against one another. And so there's, a, there's almost a control alternative to each situation happening on a, on a global scale. But what I don't fully understand is what are the primal causes? Are the primal causes things like vast population growth? huge access to information, technology. You know, what we need to do, Tim, I think, to understand is to work out what's causing the strength of the current that we find ourselves in before you can choose which boat to row, okay? And so I think, for example, that China's surge into dominance and power has been, to some extent, put on to the Chinese people as an ideology, as a purpose. Now, there's an argument which says that you can only force people to work hard for so long. <laughs> After that, you have to incentivize them. Okay? Right. And I think that there's a notion that at some point in time, people who've been forced to make money, you know, start revolting against that and saying, where's my peace? Okay? And so there's a debate about which of the economic models will prevail, which of the so-called relative democracies will prevail. And there's some very big trends, I think, that all start emerging because Access to information is immediate and pervasive. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing about China, which I've been reading a lot about, which I think is really fascinating, is, you know, at the beginning of the year, we expected, we said, okay, when is, the, when is China going to drop this crazy, you know, hyper-COVID policy and get economic growth going again? Yeah. Okay. So then they did do that, right? They dropped the crazy yeah, yeah. COVID policy. And then the growth didn't happen. 
<laughs> yeah. So, you know, this whole year, China hasn't re-emerged into the global economy in a strong way. So the reason for that, according to the people that I read, is because of something called a balance sheet recession. And uh, balance sheet recessions take place when the citizens of a country all decide simultaneously that they need to pay down their debt. So then it doesn't matter what the interest rates are, because they don't care what the interest rates are. The interest rates can be negative. Mm. But all they care about is paying down their debt. So now for them individually, this is fine, you know. But for the country, this means deflation. Yeah. And we know all about this because this is exactly what happened in Japan. And Japan has been trying for you know, two decades now you know, to, to, to revive, to get out of its balance sheet recession. And one of the characteristics of balance sheet recessions is they take place after a bubble has burst particularly in the property sector. And that's what's happened in China, and that's what caused it in Japan. So this is another, another sort of dimension to this whole debate. Yeah, I mean, I think the world is eventually always about sustainable equations, economic and otherwise. And so if you've been borrowing yourself into a storm to buy beyond yourself for whatever reasons, and eventually you can see the absence of wisdom in such a strategy, okay, yeah. then it's because you have not enjoyed the spoils of what you funded right. as much as somebody else did. Okay. And in this case, that somebody else might be the government or it might be the economic firms that you buy cars from or it might be whatever, whatever. And eventually, it's kind of a protest to repay your debt. Yeah. And so all of these things are now, I think, it's always big trend analysis to me and it's always what are sustainable economic equations. If you want people to inflate, then why? What, what's the benefit for them, not just for the state? The state can't in isolation expect its population at the population's expense to fund the state. They've got to participate in the growth that they're funding or they're going to pull out. People eventually get it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, in China's case, you can see, you know, a lot of things that the Chinese government are doing. If you're in a deflationary situation, the one thing you don't want to do is to exacerbate the existing tendency of your own population to desire lower levels of debt. You want to encourage them to be outgoing, happier, yeah. more likely to take on more debt. So, you know, you, you, all of a sudden things like your sort of con consumer confidence levels become very crucial aspects. And, you know, what I've seen, I don't know whether we get the right picture, but it must be sort of right. But, you know, the Chinese government has been taking on these big business people, you know, very famous and very admired business people in China and, you know, bringing them back down to earth. And there's a bit debate about whether they should be doing this. And, you know, they don't want to end up in a situation like America with these very big dominant tech firms, but whatever. It's not good. It's, it's not having the right effect. I've never had such a serious discussion in the show. So let's <laughs> line that <laughs> <up>. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. You wanted to talk about the, the cost of a bottle of whiskey. Hit us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was reading in the Sunday papers that you can buy a bottle of whiskey for 600,000 rand. And I'm, I'm writing about this in my column this week, which is going to be entitled Wannabe Wealth. Okay. Right. And, and in fact, you know, I tweeted this and people got it and I didn't know that they would. I said, only a poor person would spend 600,000 Rand on a bottle of whiskey. Okay. Right. Because no one would do it with hard earned cash. And so, you know, we've got to be very careful what we do about trying to aspire 
through evidence rather than 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 ownership, if I could call it that. So, so that that was my number. I'm sorry, you know, a bottle of famous grass costs about 250 bucks, and I could drink more famous grass in my whole life than 600,000 rand bottle of whiskey would cost me, and it it has the same ultimate effect. That's the that's the point. You know? <laughs> Another 600,000 was the cost of the meals on our version of Air Force One. Okay, right, which was again much written about and spoken about, and and I'm wondering what the mix of that meal's menu was as between nourishing food and whiskey. But I'm speculating here. Yeah, so those are my numbers. But I've got some other numbers, Tim, if you're interested. Okay, yeah, go, 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 go. Elections are coming up. Right. And what I'm battling to understand, and I'm not for a minute suggesting that these numbers are properly researched, which they aren't, is here's the thing. If you want to change government, if you want to change government, what would it take in terms of numbers of people? Okay. And I don't think anyone understands that. And I think it, in governments and in other ecosystems, people go, the dominant player is not challengeable. And often it is. And often it takes less than you think. Especially in African, a lot of African countries with former liberation governments. Yeah, we've got, we, 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 we've never asked the, the existing dominant government, so I bother. Okay. And that's not true. Okay, that's not true here and in many other places. So say, for instance, and this is a total for instance, a united opposition gathered 35% of the vote. Those, those aren't numbers that are impossible. Okay. What more would they need to get and where would the pools be where they sort them? The pool out of which to get those votes is huge between the registered and the, and the unregistered and the disinterested youth and so on. Their pools would be in registered voters who've given up voting yeah. and eligible citizens who've not even registered to vote. That's one of the biggest voting pools available, okay? And then maybe if they could prove that they were going to cross the line and win, there'd be some defectors from the party in charge. If you look down your street, okay, how many buddies do you have to convince? Let's just say you got 35% of the vote and you got every one person that made up that vote got another two buddies or even one buddy to come and vote with them. They'd win the election. Okay, if, if you've got 35% of the vote and the vote is 30 million and you've got 10 million votes, okay? Right. That's, that's a, the, the eligible. You know, how many more would you need? If you double the size by getting one more person for each one of you, you can work out the percentages. I'm not trying to get an accurate sum here. I'm trying to postulate the principle that is often devoid in the political debate, which is, is it possible? And how does that translate into a practical action? Now, of course, the converse is true for the controlling party. How many people do they need to stay in power? Even less. Right. Okay. Right. So, so, the, so the debate is, if the world has decided, and I'm not talking only about South Africa, if the world has decided that the, that the ruling party is, is not the one they want in future, they don't have to get as many buddies as they think they have to get that didn't vote to come and vote. And they could double their size by getting one more pal for every one of themselves. Now, if I said to you that you can change government here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, then people would be very encouraged. Answer me this if you've got the numbers to hand. If every registered voter who did not vote in 2019 
in 2019 voted for the yeah. opposition, the, whatever they call themselves, the, the Moonshot Alliance. I don't want to talk political parties. For the for okay. yeah, United yeah, yeah. Opposition or whatever sort. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's just, I think you have to talk about parties a bit because you have to assume that the ANC and the EFF are the same block. You can't add the, the EFF's numbers into the opposition. Tim, I, I don't know the answers to that question. But okay. I know the answer to your first question. Okay. Yes. Which is that there were 13 million people that were eligible and didn't vote last time. And there were 10 million people in 2019 that were registered and didn't vote. If those 10 million people, just those 10 million people, right. voted, that is the same number of people in total that voted for the ruling party. That's why this election, this coming election, is really all about motivating the unmotivated elector. That's going to be the crucial issue in this coming election. Yeah, let's move away from the, I'll admit, dodgy ground of numbers. I don't have the current numbers. These are five years old. And yeah, 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 okay, right. but, but here's the principle. We're not going to solve this country tomorrow or in 2024 or 25 or 26. That's not possible. What is possible is to create the pervasive possibility that that can happen and the faith that that can work. And so I'm saying the same hypothesis relates to choosing who's in control. You have to know that it's possible. You have to believe that change can manifest by your little own individual efforts. And what we need to introduce to this country beyond the political debate is the prospect of individual attainable dignity. And I'm saying that it's politically within our grasp. It's not impossible. I agree. And you know what country really demonstrates this so well is Kenya. Kenya, for almost half a century, was a single-party dominant state. Yeah. So weirdly, you know, I don't know how they managed it, but Kenya now is a 50-50 democracy. There's two parties. They're both dominant. They both you know, ha have around about half the yeah. electorate support. Everybody said there was going to be violence between the two. There are ethnic differences. But actually, that ha hasn't happened in any sort of significant way. And the economic growth in Kenya over the past decade, since this has happened, has just exploded. Anyway, I think it's a very good point. It's not about which parties you support. It's about the nature of the political system, the competitiveness that is sort of embedded in the political system. Mm. And I look forward to that day as I look forward to next week when we're going to actually get the numbers together <laughs> <laughs> before we talk about them. <laughs> no, no, no. The day we have to do homework here, I'm out of here. Okay. This is an opinion. This is an opinion place, not a diagnostic gathering. It's not a laboratory. The principle I'm making is just pause to think what you can do collectively and then decide whether you should be apathetic or active. Okay, that's my that's yeah. my point. Okay. We've got lots more to talk about, but that's us for the week, I'm afraid. Think about what you can do about our future. That's what I'm saying this week. <laughs> Have a nice time. Watch out for hail. Cheers, cheers. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. The biggest pod, pod network, network on, on the continent. continent. For sales inquiries, please, please contact, contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.